So I, I want to start this morning, uh, I just want to think out loud with you for a little bit and um, share with you some things that I have personally been wrestling with. And I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't normally do, uh, but I, I just want to put this out there this morning. Um, if you have your phone out and you're using it for anything else other than to look at Scripture, I'm just going to ask you to put your phone away for just a minute. And I want to remind you that listen, listen, is an action verb, okay? To listen is an action verb. Um, and what I'm about to share is not important because I'm sharing it. I just think it's important because it, it creates some awareness that um, ha- has really been helpful to me personally, and I hope it will be helpful to you as we close our series from the book of Nehemiah. Um, Twenty years ago today, we were probably as united as a nation as we had been since the close of World War II. Twenty years ago today, September the 12th, um, there's a picture you want you to see on screen. This is all of Congress standing together. Now, this was actually at the 10-year anniversary of 9-1-1. But there were similar pictures from a few days after, if you remember, when Democrats and Republicans and Independents all stood as one. There's a sadness in my mind and in my heart when I realize I may never see a picture like this again as long as I live. And that just makes me sad. There are new pictures that emerge in our culture some 20 years later. Images of riots and images of uh, people who are kind of bent on destruction deconstruction. Certainly this is not a nationwide phenomenon. Certainly we don't see this in every community, but we see it enough that I don't know about you, but to me it's very disconcerting, very hard to see these types of images. I stumbled across a resource a few months back, and I've really been wrestling with this um, and I, I do not know if this individual is a believer or not. I've tried to vet him out, and there's quite a bit of information out there about his research. There's not much information out there about his personal life, at least that I've been able to find. But a gentleman named Martin Gurry has written a book entitled The Revolt of the Public. And I think after I share this with you, this will you'll, you'll see the why. He has studied basically how humankind has progressed uh, throughout the millennia and has identified five major communication waves. Um, And the first is the invention of writing and how that changed how humankind thinks, how humankind processes information. And then the development of alphabets um, and how that changed We have the creation of of language and a vocabulary and and meaning, words that have meaning. And and again, 
significantly impacted how humankind processes information. The third is the printing press and movable type. Uh, which, by the way, when that happens, scared church leaders to death, right? If you've done any study at all, because what happened? If you were a, a Catholic church leader, for example, what happens when the common man can now read for himself or can read for herself? What happens? You no longer have as much authority as you once did, right? The authority now is kind of transitioning more into the hands of the people. Mass media came along, television, radio, etc., the internet. That was a fourth wave. But he asserts that we are now in a fifth wave of information. He has kind of a little humorous tag that he's ascribed to mankind now, humankind now. Uh, we are no longer homo sapiens. We are homo informaticus. That's what he refers to us as, homo informaticus. And I thought that was kind of cute. But he defines this fifth wave of digital media as a cataclysmic expansion of information and communication technology. And I've been wrestling with this now for several years, and I didn't really have a vocabulary for it, but when I stumbled across this book, I was like, okay, now that makes sense. Because we are so overwhelmed with emotion and with with information, you've got to think about this. We have never had the amount of information at our disposal that we have right now. We have never been bombarded with as much information in a 24-hour cycle as we are bombarded with right now. Surely we've always been bombarded with information, but not to this degree. So a couple of things I want to share with you again just to kind of set the stage as we wrap up this study in Nehemiah. One of the authors who was commenting on this book wrote, The fifth wave increases the number of sources of information and decreases barriers to the spread of information. The new information sphere allows the public to learn more about its elites, and I'll define that here in just a second, elite. This growing awareness makes the public much more challenging in relations with its elites. Knowing how authority really works makes it less sacred. I think that's a really powerful sentence. I don't think he's using it religiously, but I think there certainly is a tie. Any person in charge is now vulnerable before the public. Every expert is surrounded by a horde of amateurs eager to pounce on every mistake and mock every unsuccessful prediction or policy. I'd say that strikes it pretty close to where we are. Would you not agree? If you don't believe me, spend three minutes on Twitter. That's all it'll take. Spend three minutes on Twitter. may take you five on Facebook, but you'll still get there, okay? So this is from Guri, and I I thank you for hanging with me. I'm actually going somewhere with all of this. So he's now defining elites, the phrase the other author used. He uses the word here, authority. When I say authority, I mean government, office holders, regulators, the bureaucracy, the military, the police. But I also mean corporations, financial institutions, universities, mass media, politicians, the scientific research industry, think tanks, and non-governmental organizations, endowed foundations and other nonprofit organizations, the visual and performing arts uh, business. Each of these institutions speaks as an authority in some domain. Each clings to a shrinking monopoly over its field of play. So here's how this dynamic works. Years ago, if you were an outlier, the community 
was able to, to basically keep you in check. Are you with me? Are you with me? Maybe you had a radical idea or a radical concept, but, but the community, the structure as it existed, was, was able to keep that radical thought or that radical ideal primarily in check. But because of the phenomenon that is the fifth wave, anybody who believes anything can find an audience with the capacity to grow to push that anything any way they decide. Do you see how it's working? So that things that that even 20 years ago, most of us would have said, that's just ludicrous. Who in their right mind would believe that or push that or endorse that? But now we're in a place where you don't have to be in your right mind. Right? And people still will swallow it sometimes, hook, line, and sinker, and then also help you promote it. Are you with me? So here's the new reality. Hate, anger, bitterness now drives much of the dialogue. And in certain places, even more so than love. Our, our endless social media consumption coupled with the horrific images that we flood our minds with. And, and even if they're not horrific, the endless hours of junior high uh, level humor that we consume, and that's a compliment to what passes as a lot of humor uh, these days, But what's happening is we are losing our ability to think critically. We are deconstructing everything without processing what's taking its place. And I I believe here are some of the reasons that this is happening. Let me just give you just a tip of the iceberg of mass media. This is much, much more pervasive than what I can describe during our time together this morning. But I just want to share a few stats with you. Over 100 million households in 59 countries subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Over 73 million subscribe to Netflix. That's just in the U.S. and Canada alone. 41 million households, households, I don't know how many people that is, but 41 million households subscribe to HBO in the United States. 40 million Americans um, regularly visit uh, Internet porn sites. 35% of all material downloaded from the Internet is pornographic, even though pornographic websites only comprise about 5% of the overall Internet. Facebook has 2.8 billion users worldwide. TikTok has 1.2 billion users worldwide. Now, as you're looking at those statistics, this may be the most sobering statistic of all. Not one of those entities, not one, cares anything about Jesus Christ. Not one of them cares anything about the faith development of those who follow Jesus Christ. Not one. 
And yet these are the wells that many of us drink much, much more from than from the Word of God or from the community of faith or from our own practice of the spiritual disciplines. I think in a lot of ways we're, we're in a Babylon of our own, a modern-day Babylon, if you will. Maybe we're not held captive, but, but I think we're feeling the effects of the worldview that is just not godless, but in many ways it's just evil. And I, I'm not saying these words to pit us against people. It's not an us versus them. I want to pray. I want to put my faith on display in a very loving way, in a very caring way. But this evil is real. Still, that person isn't my enemy. Satan is my enemy. Satan is the enemy of that person. And so I want to love well. If you don't believe in God, I don't expect you to act godly, right? But I say these words because I I fear that many of us, particularly some of our young believers, I fear they're just growing weary. And I fear that there sometimes it's just we're starting to kind of drift with the tide, the new Babylon tide. And my hope and my prayer is that as we go into the Word, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that we will steal our resolve through the power of the Word of God and not be overwhelmed by this fifth wave. So we're in a final lesson in this eight-week series on the book of Nehemiah, and I hope this series has blessed you, and I hope more importantly that it's inspired you to engage in this interim season and even more importantly, beyond. I'm going to finish our series today by looking at just a few key words and phrases from chapters 11 and uh, 12. And there's going to be some people that we're going to meet. Some may be new names to you. Uh, others perhaps will not be. So first, just a brief history to get us caught up. About 150 years have passed since the wall was destroyed until the time that it was rebuilt. And since Jerusalem had no walls, many of the Jews had fled to the countryside and they had built their homes there. The walls are now restored. And so as a result, there's, there's plenty of room for people to come back and build once again inside the city. Some move back fairly quickly. We read in Nehemiah 11 in verse 1, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Others agreed to a lottery system to see who would move back into the city. We read in the later part of that same verse, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. And everybody's attitude about this seems to be really, really positive. We read in verse 2, the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So then we see in chapters 11 and 12 uh, other people who are mentioned. There's actually some pretty long lists. And, and why, why is that important? Because when it comes to God, people are important, right? Your name is important. Who you are as part of the family of God, that's important. 
One of the things that keeps me up at night is when I know that people are hurting, when people feel pain uh, or anxiety. And the truth is, we've not been immune from pain, right? I think the last couple of years have not been easy for many reasons. Would you agree? (laughs) It's like we experience a hurricane of some sort, an emotional hurricane or a spiritual hurricane or a mental and possibly even physical. And before we can kind of get our heads around it or before we can kind of get our hearts around surveying the damage, the next one kind of hits. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like it's kind of hard to keep my head above water. Anybody relate? So through every up and down, God remains faithful. Through every wave, God remains faithful. We're still rebuilding, perhaps emotionally and mentally and spiritually and and physically. Maybe there's some growing momentum, but even as that happens, all of us know people who have kind of fallen through the cracks and people who are really struggling to kind of deal with these emotional hurricanes and mental hurricanes, the cleanup from the devastation of those But I believe, because I see this in you as a church, I think you're trying to love well in Jesus' name. I think that's going to be the the antidote, the cure to the ills that surround us. I think all of our futures could be radically different uh, than what these seasons of storm bring if we respond to one another the same way that the Jews respond to one another. When they decided working together honored God more than living in constant fear and anxiety, because that had been their history. There's another way to read Nehemiah 11, too, when we pull in all of the information from the greater context. The text says the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. I think that could be read also as the people commended all who volunteered to move from their homes for the sake of restoring community, for the sake of honoring God, for the sake of caring for others, for the sake of worshiping in the temple. I think the text informs us that that would be an appropriate way to read without compromising the truth of the text. And I love this word volunteer, and it's not because I grew up in Tennessee, okay, Uh, but I just love this word volunteer. Um, It's actually from a Hebrew word. That means to, to impel or to incite from within. It's a word that the ideal, it's filled with generosity and willingness. It's a very beautiful, very powerful word. There's one individual that we meet in Nehemiah that's of particular interest. His uh, name is Matania. Matania. And then we read in verse 8, Matania, who together with his associates was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. This may be one of our first examples, Mike, of uh, a song leader <laughs> in Scripture, right? Of a worship leader. And uh, so he was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. We have Levites who are in charge of the safekeeping of God's Word, priests who lead various parts of the worship, heads of families who are business leaders and civic leaders. There's security guards, those who care for the, the walls and the grounds. And there's even an ancestor of Jesus, a man named Perez who moves into the city. We see him mentioned in Nehemiah eleven six and in Matthew 1, 3. So think about that. The book of Nehemiah, what happens at this time 
directly impacts the coming later of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we might read this passage, and some of us might look at it and go, okay, cool, they they built a wall. Well, I think that um, they, like we, I think they were called to do so much more. As I reflect on the spirit that's present in this moment of, of dedication, when they're dedicating the wall, I think, for the most part, I think the entire community gets it. I just want you to notice how they all come together, and I want you to notice what happens. Nehemiah twelve forty three. And on that day, the day of dedication, on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. I just want to pick that verse apart a little bit. A few truths, a few observations as we head down the stretch of today's message. I pray that what we learn here will propel you, the Mesa Church of Christ, into the future that God is uniquely preparing for you. We read in this text, and on that day, So the day that's mentioned is the day that uh, the wall that the people constructed around Jerusalem, uh, this project that was birthed out of vision, prayer, the project that restored the hope of a community of faith, the project that rebuilt that which previously lay in ruins. On that day, a ceremony was held to dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. There was music. There was singing, there was joyful celebration, there were processions, there was worship, there was so much more. And on the heels of incredible opposition, if you remember some of our previous messages, there was opposition from within, there was opposition from without, but on the heels of that, the people of God stand victorious. And can't, can't you just see it in your mind? Nobody wants to leave. It's just this profound sense of excitement, this profound sense of holiness. It's just sheer joy. And I, I struggle to relate here because it's hard for me to think about episodes in my life that parallel what they're experiencing. And I don't want to cheapen the text by comparing it to historical or non-biblical events. And so how do we rightly compare anything to this? I mean, the only thing that I can think of that comes to mind is when I, I saw my, you know, I saw my sons for the, the very first time, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was even better when I saw my grandchildren for the first time, right? Because you got that practice round in the first time, and then 28 years later, your grandkids show up, and you're a little more mature. And, and so maybe that's about, you know, as close as I can come to just sheer joy, just sheer all over <laughs> amazement at how good God is. On that day, on that day, and we see a powerful pronoun here, on that day, they, they offer great sacrifice. The women and the children, everybody, everybody, the entire congregation celebrates together the music, the singing, the other forms of praise that are overflowing from joy and from worship. This is a group of people who realize their total dependence on God. They're dedicating the wall. We talked about this a little bit previously. That's just another way to say that they're setting it apart for God. They've consecrated this, this, this moment, this construction project. 
And I just got to think how much easier it would be to be filled with joy and worship if we believed in our heart of hearts that the body of Christ is dedicated to God. It's his church. It's not mine. I am clay on the potter's wheel. But clay, the potter shapes and forms into his design. It's not the other way around. I don't make God look like I want him to look. I'm at his mercy, right? I'm at his will to be used as he chooses to use me. Look look a little more at the text here. I love this. They offered great sacrifices rejoicing because God had given them great joy. God had given them great joy. What makes you joyful, church? Collectively, what makes you fill with joy? Individually, what makes you fill with joy or full of joy? I want to ask you a couple of questions. What are you willing to sacrifice out of the joy you feel for what God has done in your life? What are you willing to sacrifice just in response to the joy of the Lord? What are you willing to sacrifice so that others can experience the joy of the Lord? How much personal recognition are you willing to lay down so that God gets the glory? Now, I'm not talking about what happens in here on Sunday morning so much as I'm talking about what we're willing to sacrifice to make sure others seek and find Jesus. Our vision as a church, I think, should be to celebrate God so powerfully, not just on Sundays, but daily through how we live our lives, our, our actions, through our words, through our character, etc., in our homes, in our neighborhoods, where we shop, where we get our cars fixed, etc. So here's something very practical to think about. If you get lousy service at a restaurant, leave a big tip anyway. And here's why I say that. The joy of the Lord drives your actions. Not what somebody else does or doesn't do for you. I may never know what is happening in the life of a server. But a cheap tip or a demand to see a manager from a bunch of church people most likely is not going to draw others closer to Jesus. So instead of standing up for your rights as a consumer, why not ask? hey, uh, looks like you're having maybe a little bit of a tough day. Is there something I can pray about for you? Church, that's the language of Jesus' people. Not in a self-righteous, beat-them-over-the-head kind of way, but just a, a simple question asked warmly in love. I want you to pay particular attention to how verse 43 ends. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And I don't mean that we have to go get an audio meter and go stand a mile away from here and see if people can hear us. But I hope they hear the word of the Lord loudly and clearly through our actions. I hope the, the echo of your service reverberates in this community and beyond because of your deep, deep love for Jesus. I don't know about you, I think it's so easy for me to focus on the negative. And in the middle of their celebration, there was still a lot left to do. 
Uh, If we interviewed Nehemiah, he probably would not have said, you know what, we made a plan, we worked the plan, and it turned out perfectly. Uh, They didn't have joy because everything went their way. They had joy because what they did fit into the plans of God. And that, that is living with purpose. When we know the source of our hope, it's easy to live purposefully for him. A few final thoughts. We live in a time of feeling, I think, we live in a time of feeling less than. You ever feel less than? I think that's coming from the drift that I mentioned earlier because it doesn't come from the Lord. He gave his son for you. There's nothing that should ever happen in your life to make you feel less than. It's not walking my path. And boy, do we hear that a lot these days in advertising. Even something along the lines of, get the night's sleep you deserve. Buy this $27,000 mattress or whatever it is, okay? You know, it's all about you, right? It's all about me. It's all about what I want, all about what I need. But I think as Christians, we understand something different. It's not about walking my path the way I think my path should go. I think if it's all about me, I just get so quickly disillusioned with God. And I think that's where a lot of people are these days. I need to understand that walking with God is a great adventure. It's filled with ups and downs. There's a reason that God made it that way, I think. I always am reminded of how much I need Him. That I rely on Him for everything. In the peaks and the valleys, I rely on God for everything. What happens when we see this for the first time? I mean, what happens when we truly, truly see it the way that God intended? I have a video I want you to watch, and I want to warn you, you may need to grab a tissue if you've got one close by. Uh, if not, you can just wipe your nose on the sleeve of the person sitting next to you. But, uh, but uh, this, is, um, this is a very sweet, sweet Video, and we're going to play this now, and then I'll have one final thought as we close. This gentleman is colorblind, and his family has purchased some glasses for him to be able to see color for the very first time. Oh, here we go. Don't break it. Daddy, you hate it? 
<laughs> Papa, look at the hat. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's not pink, is it? That video just warms my heart. I, I think I think one of the things this video at least reminds me of, and I think what it helps me understand is that um, when we truly, truly, fully dedicate our hearts to the Lord. And when I realize that it was my sin that put him on the cross and to know the depths of his love, I I just don't think anything ever looks the same, right? I don't think anything ever looks the same. And uh, because of who we are in Jesus, uh, nothing will ever be the same. Amen.